You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning. Um, It's been said a couple times, but I need to say it too. It just really is good to look more of you in the eyes. Um, Those of you joining us online, we love you. Longing to see you in person as well, hopefully sooner than later. Totally understand the need to to go slow for many of you. And, um, but it is different to have people in the room, uh, to engage with people in real life, um, to even to use a, a biblical term and word, to behold one another and actually look another image bearer of God in the eyes, um, something that we can't do through screens, um, just means a lot and is, um, uh, is something that's easy to take for granted until you don't have it for a few months. Um, so grateful to have you here. Uh, grateful to um, to be worshiping with you, to hear your voices singing over me in the front row. That's just a that's a gift I have missed. And as John mentioned, we try our best when it's just a couple of us here, but we don't sound near as good as as you all do collectively. So we're going to be in uh, Psalm 66 today. So if you have Bibles, you can make your way to Psalm 66. Uh, we don't. You probably noticed have the normal stuff in the seat back in front of you. There's no prayer cards, high cards, pens. We're trying to limit the amount of contact. Uh, and contact points that there are. It did feel, however, weird to, to like not have Bibles there, so they're there for you. As a church, we're going to keep the Bibles there, and please use them if you'd like to. Um, if, if you use them and we put them back, we'll wipe them down before that, we'll, but we're going to leave the Bibles there. And if you're using one of those Bibles, uh, page 480 is where you can find Psalm 66. Uh, we've been for the last couple months, and we're continuing today this series together called The Mission of God's People. As followers of Jesus Christ, what are we called to do and be in the world? That's the key question that we're, we're seeking to answer different places in Scripture uh, in this series. Uh, one answer the Bible gives, from cover to cover really, is that God's people are those who praise and pray. Who praise and pray. Uh, and it's an aspect of our mission as God's people that we're maybe particularly inclined to neglect and miss We don't necessarily associate it with mission. Maybe that's the way to think about it. We just kind of assume that we're going to be people who praise and pray, but we tend to start viewing praise and prayer worship as preparatory, and then then we're sent out to do the actual work. Or maybe it's a break from or a rest from mission, but not part of mission itself. What we're going to hopefully see today through the Word of God, is that, th- that praise and prayer itself, worship itself, is part of the mission. It's part of not only the, the means, it's part of not only the end, I should say, of what we want people to, to do together, which is to, to worship the one true God, but it's part of the means itself of, of getting there. Praise and prayer, uh, they are formative. They are preparatory. Um, but uh, this is not only how we live out our identity as God's people, As we do that together, as we join together, and even personally, we're inviting other people to join in. We're inviting people from all over the world and from our own backyards who do not at present follow Jesus or know Jesus or trust in Jesus. We're inviting them to overhear us in our praises and prayers in the hopes that they would would join in. So for us and for others and for the fame of God, uh, let us be people who praise and pray. And let me pray for us uh, as as we begin. O God, our help in ages past and our hope for years to come, show us now your holy ways 
teach us your paths. By your Holy Spirit, open our minds that we may be led in your truth and taught your will. And then may we praise you by listening to your word and by obeying it. Let me pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Psalm chapter 66. Uh, I'll read the entirety of it. You can follow along with me. To the choir master, a song, a psalm. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Verse 13, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals. With the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. This is God's word. Psalm 66 is a psalm of thanksgiving. And it would have been used by God's people in their rhythms of yearly worship when they would gather together at the temple for one of their three yearly festivals. Because of the reference in Psalm 66 to the Exodus, most likely the festival it would have been used at is Passover, uh, when the Israelites together would remember the deliverance that God had worked for them out of Egypt and eventually into the promised land. The psalm is divided into two parts, and maybe you heard that as we read it just a moment ago. There's the we and the me. Uh, so the first three stanzas, the first 12 verses, are we verses. Uh, they are us verses. The last two stanzas, verses 13 through 20, are a first-hand personal account. It becomes I and my and me is the language of those, those stanzas. And together, Psalm 66 highlights both our collective and our individual role to, as part of our mission as God's people, to be those who praise and pray. So we'll consider with the rest of our time today uh, two things. Shared praise and prayer and personal praise and prayer. Shared and personal. So first, shared praise in prayer. Uh, as God's people, why do we gather for worship? 
Why do we gather for worship? If you have never thought about that question, wrestled through the answer to that question before, then most likely these last three months force the issue, force the question. As it's been mentioned, today's the first Sunday in about three months uh, that we've gathered together with a substantial number of people from our church family. Uh, And over these months, and maybe you've been engaging in this in some way too, um, Christians of various tribes and theological convictions and denominations uh, have been wrestling about the validity of online worship. Like is, now that we've done this for a pandemic for three months, is that the future of where the church is going and, and should it be? Now there are some great opportunities with online worship services. I think it's important to, to acknowledge and appreciate that. Uh, it's a game changer for people with serious medical issues and people who for whatever reason are just unable to, to leave their homes. Uh, evangelistically, it's also a game changer for people who are exploring Christianity, and particularly if they live in places where it's really costly to be a Christian, uh, where to be a Christian to show up in a public place and to gather with other Christians uh, is risky, uh, runs the risk of, of marginalization or oppression or persecution even. But fundamentally, a local church is not a church unless its people physically gather together at least a good bit of the time. Uh, In fact, to even seriously entertain the possibility that church should be virtual means that our lenses, our own subconscious view of things, has been formed in a hyper-individualistic way. And we're at risk of that, particularly in the West, particularly in in America. Since there ever was a called-out and chosen people of God, since Abraham, there has not only been this shared identity— but common places and common time and common practices that have as their baseline gathering together physically as the people of God. Not to mention, and I thought Rachel spoke to this so well as she led led liturgy before, uh, from creation to restoration, the whole way through, God's work is never just spiritual work. He's always concerned with the physical and the material. And so there's this kind of dualism that can start to creep into our thinking because technology enables us to gather virtually and digitally that now we can, we can separate what God has always joined together. We can pull apart the spiritual from the physical and the material when we actually should not do that. So we gather as God's people in person to know one another. We gather to love one another. We gather to encourage one another. But even more than that, we gather together to exalt the name of God. We gather together to, as the Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans, to with one voice, to join our lives, to join our voices together in one common place, and with one voice, exalt the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that these past several months of us not gathering regularly has solidified this for you. Um, I hope really in a way that you have felt the loss and felt the lack of gathering. I hope that we cherish what we are so inclined to take for granted. And for, particularly for those of us who just make it a, a really regular rhythm of our lives and discipline to, to gather and be part of a church family every week, I hope that the gap, that the absence of that makes you cherish what is easy to take for granted. And among everything else that we might look back on and remember in 2020, because we're not even halfway through it, and it's already been a year. It's already been an eventful. It's been like five years crammed into five months. 
among all the things we might look back on and remember about 2020, let it also be for us a year where the gathered worship of God's people, where the local church itself becomes even more to you and to me, to borrow Charles Spurgeon's phrase, the dearest place on earth to us. The dearest place on earth to us. Now, as much as I've been, and maybe you've been anticipating this, uh, gathering together in person, Psalm 66 shows us that our shared praise and prayer is both for us and for others. It is for us, but it's also part of our missionary identity and missional lifestyle. As God's people gather to worship, they witness and proclaim and they stir one another up in rehearsing the good news of the gospel. But as they do that, they invite the whole world to listen. They invite the whole world to overhear and to join in. And we read that in Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, who? All the earth. Not only God's people, but all the earth. Come and see what God has done. Bless our God, O peoples. Not just God's people, but O peoples, the nations, all peoples. An Old Testament scholar named Michael Wilcox sums it up this way. He writes, the psalmist has a bigger vision. He expected the singers of the psalm to be looking out to the wider world, to be telling those who did not yet recognize the Lord of Israel that they, and not just God's own people, should take note of what God had done and bow before him. A pastor and author named John Piper uh, once quipped and, and wrote in a, in a book from about 30 years ago, missions exists because worship does not. Missions exist because worship does not. In other words, the whole reason that we even do a series called The Mission of God's People, that we even talk about this topic, is because there are many people at present who don't worship God, who, who don't acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior, who don't devote all that they are to the honor and glory and praise of God. There are people like this in our own backyards. And there are people like this in the furthest, most remote places across the globe. The end toward which all mission is aimed is the worship of God. So think about it this way. There will come a day when mission stops, when mission ceases, but there will never come a day when worship does. There will never come a day when worship does. When Jesus comes again and makes all things new, when God reconciles the world to himself in Christ, mission on that day is done. But worship is just beginning. Worship is just beginning. And what's more, worship, our praises and our prayers, they are not only the ends, but a means toward those ends. So when we gather for worship, when we rehearse the gospel the way that we do when we gather each week, we are in those moments enacting the future. It's not like God has given us some kind of busy work that we do temporarily for a while and then when we get to be with him forever, we do something different. We step into and we enact the future when we gather together and join our voices in his praise. Talking about praise and prayer, what, what is praise specifically? As Christopher Wright defines it, it's not just general affirmations of nice things about God, but specifically celebrating his great acts of salvation and mercy. So not just general niceties about God, specifically celebrating his great acts of salvation and mercy. And that's exactly what the psalmist includes here in Psalm 66. Come and see what God has done. 
He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. And you might envision someone listening in saying, well, what deeds are you referring to? Well, he turned the sea into dry land. He delivered us from slavery in Egypt. And then when Pharaoh changed his mind and came after us and wanted to re-enslave us, he opened up a pathway through the sea and we walked across. He made a way where there was no way. And then not only that, we passed through the river on foot, the Jordan River. After God sustained us in the wilderness for 40 years, God brought us into the rest of the promised land. The land that he had promised to give to Abraham so many years before. Now on this side of the cross, our psalms and our praises and our prayers are most centered on that. Why is that? Because the cross, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the great act of God's salvation and mercy. It is the great act of God's salvation and mercy, which is why everything that we do in our praises and prayers, both together and when we're on our own, should always point to Jesus at the center of all of that. So verses 5 through 7 here in Psalm 66, they celebrate God's great deeds, the salvation he's worked for his people. And then verses 8 through 12, praise God for preserving and rescuing his people from these long years of ill and misery and trials and testing. Note, as the psalmist recounts it though, it is God who has brought the testing. It is God who has brought the trials. Verse 10, you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. God is not absent or asleep at the wheel when crushing burdens are laid upon the backs of his people, when when other people ride over their heads. He is not distant when you and I go through the fire and go through the water. The God who authors our great salvation is the very same God who authors our trials and our miseries. And, the psalmist says, the one who brings us through them. He doesn't only author the trials and miseries, he's the one who brings us through to the other side. And therefore, whenever we celebrate God's awesome deeds together, when we rejoice in his deliverance and his rescue and his sustaining us through trials and testing together, we do so for us and we do so for others. We are reminding ourselves of the true story of the world. We are rehearsing the good news of the gospel. We are saturating ourselves in the grace and mercy of God. And as we do so, simultaneously, we are announcing that mercy, proclaiming that mercy and grace to anyone who's willing to listen in. Likewise, uh, our shared prayers, our shared prayers, because the Psalms themselves are what Augustine once referred to as the school of prayer. They are for us and for others. Psalm 66 uh, doesn't specifically point out the people of God praying together, but the context here, God's people gathering together at the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover makes that concept, makes that idea of praying together inescapable. How so? Because the temple, when it was built and dedicated, it was done explicitly both for the people of God themselves and for anyone who would come and see. 1 Kings chapter 8, when King Solomon dedicates the temple, he lists off these different circumstances where the people of God might come to Jerusalem and pray and praise their God. But also as he dedicates the temple, he refers to it there as a house of prayer for who? All nations. 
all nations. And this is remarkable. Solomon asked God to hear and answer the prayers of those who don't at present acknowledge or worship him. The pagan nations around us, when they hear of your great name, because they will hear of your great name, and when they come, Solomon says, and they, they will pray, they will come here and they will pray, maybe just out of curiosity, maybe out of superstition, maybe just to cover their bases because they already prayed to four or five other gods, so why not try one more? But they will pray and Solomon says, God, whatever they ask, I pray you would answer them so that they will know that you are the one true God and they will come to see and believe and worship you too. God's missional purpose and the mission of his people is woven into the fabric of the temple and what it was for. Now, because of Jesus, we no longer worship at a temple or the temple. And that's because we are collectively the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. The New Testament authors speak to that on multiple occasions, that we collectively, the people of God, are the temple where the presence of God dwells by the Holy Spirit. Or as it's been said in short, now the temple has legs. It's the people of God. The temple has legs. And because of that, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, in our gathered worship, in our shared praises and prayers, let's never aim too small. Let's never aim too small. Praise and pray for the benefit of each other in this room who are already in the family of God, but also for the benefit of anyone who would come and see and listen in. Because in doing both of these things, that's how we fulfill the ultimate purpose of praise and prayer, which is to glorify the one true God. A a related note on this. Uh, Gathered worship is one of the nine rhythms of grace that we talk about a lot at Liberty Church. And Psalm 66, the other Psalms, a number of other texts like this, give great shape uh, to how and why we worship the way we do. It's why we have uh, each week in our worship services prayers of the people. And we step into that role to be people who pray not only for the needs of each other, although that's definitely something we should do, but who pray for the needs of people in our region and in our state and in our nation and in our world. It's why we seek to explain the different aspects of our worship services, the different parts of our liturgy. Our liturgy, what we do when we gather, must always be faithful. It must always exalt the greatness of God or it is not real worship. As an extension of that, though, it should also be understandable and comprehensible and hospitable to people who would would care to listen in. Because ultimately what we want Is this not true? Ultimately, what we want is for other people to join in. We long for the day when mission stops, when mission comes to a close. And on that day, we want as many people as possible joining their voices with us so that with one voice, we might together glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So praise and prayer is something that's shared. Second, personal praise and prayer. It's also something that's very personal. In verse 13, Psalm 66 shifts from the we to the me. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will tell what God has done for my soul. So Psalm 66 is a call and response, just like we do sometimes in our worship services. But whereas in some cases, it's the one leader, the individual who goes first, and then the the group, the congregation responds, here it's the other way around. Here it's like a band or like a symphony 
playing together. The song opens and they're all playing together. And then after establishing the rhythm, after establishing the melody, now up steps the soloist. And the spotlight kind of focuses in on the soloist. And the psalmist here takes this broader cosmic scope of God's great salvation and proclaims what it has meant on an individual and personal level to him. God has not delivered a nameless, faceless, anonymous crowd. He has delivered me. He has delivered you. The psalmist says, I was in trouble. I cried to God with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. And God listened. He heard my prayer. His steadfast love remained on me. On me. What prayer did God answer? Uh, We don't know, specifically. And it seems to maybe be even left intentionally vague. Um, Perhaps so that when God's people would use this psalm, when they would gather and use this psalm in their festivals, in their worship, perhaps at Passover or other times, that this psalm could be used for a whole range, a whole spectrum of prayers. So that different soloists, as it were, could step up to the mic and add their own personal praise and prayer to the congregation's voice. Some of our prayers are prayers of repentance. So the psalmist says here, if I had cherished iniquity, uh, if I had aimed to persist and remain in my sin, in my rebellion against God, then God would not have listened to my prayer. Now this is the important clarification. Sinlessness is not a requirement for God to hear your prayer. And thank God for that because we'd all just be in a lot of trouble if that were the requirement, if that were the prerequisite But instead, part of our prayers, part of our crying out to God itself is repentance. Rather than cherishing sin, we are turning away from it. And we especially are invited and called and drawn in to do that as we are praising God and remembering that no one else, nothing else in life can satisfy the deep longing of our soul but him. Our prayers of repentance benefit both us and others. Um, they, are, they are, first and foremost, the only fitting response when we wake up to the horror of our sin against the holy and perfect God. They are what God requires of us to cleanse and forgive our sin. Repentance and faith are opposite sides of the same coin. And they're the thing that God has called us to so that he will respond and cleanse us from our sin. At the same time, the humility, uh, the contrition that we demonstrate in repentance is also for other people. How is that? Because it proclaims to other people, it makes unmistakable to other people that we as Christians are not better, are not smarter, are not superior to other people in any way. We are but beggars showing other beggars where to find the bread. We are in no way superior to the people that we want to join us in the worship of the one true God. We're saying, I am a sinner that's been humbled to repent before God and then to follow him. Some of our prayers are gratitude. Thanking God for who, he's, who he is and what he's done. And so this psalmist is personally rejoicing in how God has delivered and answered not only God's people and mass, but him personally. And as you have no doubt experienced in your life, personal testimony, an individual speaking up about a, a circumstance or a situation in their life can take what otherwise feels obscure and ethereal and immediately make it concrete and believable. 
So for example, it's one thing to know that 156,000 allied troops stormed the beaches at Normandy. It's one thing to know that 250,000 people roughly joined the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. The numbers, I mean, the, the, the crowds, and thinking about the mass of those people, the events themselves are amazing. But it makes it real on a whole new level if one among those hundreds of thousands steps up and says, and I was there. And, and here's what it was like to be there. And here's what I heard. And here's what I experienced being among those thousands and thousands of people. The gospel is that God saves sinners. And that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. We embrace as a church family the cosmic scope of the gospel. And at the same time, the same time, some of my favorite days of the year when we gather together to worship are covenant entrance days where people, many of you, have shared not only what God has done to save sinners, but what God has done to save you. What God has done, the work, the powerful work and the transformation that God has brought in your life. Some of our prayers are repentance, some are gratitude, and some are intercessory. We pray on behalf of other people. We pray on behalf of the world. We pray for the nations. We pray for individuals to come and to know, to come to know and follow Jesus Christ. As we've been in this series and exploring these various aspects of our mission as God's people, uh, prayer has been a refrain, and I hope you've heard that. Uh, often when we get toward the end of each week and we're talking about, well, what do we do now with this? What's the pr- practical kind of application steps? Prayer has been a refrain. Prayer is how we experience our own communion with God, our own relationship with him, but it is also, as we've said, it's our arsenal. It's the greatest tool, the greatest weapon that we possess to actually push back what is evil in the world, what remains dark in the world. It's the way that we actually bring lasting change. It's the the way that we actually call upon God to change human hearts and thereby transform the world in light of it. Uh, About 15 years ago, a pastor named Tim Keller uh, wrote an article called Kingdom-Centered Prayer. And if you find yourself today uh, in a place where you need to be re-envisioned, reinvigorated for both shared and personal prayer, I would love to send you a copy of that article. Uh, He talks in that article about uh, revival, spiritual renewal, and how historically throughout the the generations of the people of God throughout the church, whenever there's been an awakening or a reawakening um, among the people of God, prayer has been the consistent ingredient. Prayer has been the thing that's been consistent across all of that. Prayer is how sleepy Christians wake up, Uh, Prayer is how new people come to faith in Jesus. Prayer is what fuels the massive positive impact that the people of God can collectively make in all kinds of realms of life. And this is a great heart check for people like me and maybe like some of you who get antsy and who always want to be given like the practical action steps that I can take. You know, when someone is in, in trouble or hurting or suffering in some way, I'll reach out and say, hey, I'd love to be praying for you. How can I pray for you? But also, what else can I do? What are the other four or five things that I can really do? Because that's the real work. It's tempting to think about praise and prayer as something that's merely preparatory. It's, it's tempting to think about praise and prayer as the locker room pep talk before the game starts. 
Let's all huddle up. We'll get each other amped up and excited. And then we'll go out and do the real thing that we're here to do, which is the game. But what we're seeing and what we see throughout Scripture is that, no, praise and prayer is the game. Worship is actually what we are made to do from the moment that we enter this life to, the, to all eternity. It's the ends, it's the means, it's everything. Praise and prayer, worship of God is all of it. So then bringing all this together, God's people are those who praise and pray. And what you and I are called to in that is this, personal ownership of a shared endeavor. Personal ownership of a shared endeavor. And so let's ask ourselves this morning, which of those am I more prone to neglect? Which, are, which of these are you more prone to neglect? The personal ownership piece or the shared endeavor piece? When it comes to, to praise and prayer, are you too individualistic? Are you a, a soloist? And maybe you're so used to being a soloist that you don't really even value or see the need for a band to be behind you. You do your own thing. It's just you and Jesus, and you do your own thing, maybe with a really high degree of personal ownership, but you neglect doing it together with other people as part of your shared identity, as part of your shared pursuit as the people of God, as a public and present witness in the world to join together with, with God's people. Or on the other hand, are you inclined to avoid personal ownership? Are you too content to let the group do the praising and praying for you and not actually step into it personally yourself. You're maybe a, a really happy member of the band, to, to continue the analogy. But then when the time comes for you to solo, because no doubt in your life there will be times when you have an opportunity to step into a conversation with someone, to step into someone else's life and to say, not only here's what God has done for the world in Jesus, but here is what God has done for me. And so when those moments come, Will you be able to speak up or will you try to hide behind the band, try to remain silent and let the band, let the group do it for you? This is not perfect by any means, but here's a diagnostic question just in light of where we are right now in society um, to help you maybe see where you are in that. And the question is this, these last three months as you reflect on them, has your pursuit of praise and prayer been thriving or tanking? <laughs> Has it been thriving or has it been tanking? Uh, as we've been sheltering in places, we've not been gathering together in the same ways. What's been going on in your own life and pursuits of praise and prayer? If it's been thriving, or maybe to put it this way, if you've hardly noticed or missed gathering together to praise and pray with the church, then you might be inclined to be too individualistic, inclined to neglect the shared identity and the shared endeavor. If, however, your pursuit of prayer and praise has been tanking, uh, if, if you have been so affected by not gathering that you've essentially put these pursuits on the shelf until we could gather again, then it's likely that you need to step up the personal ownership side of things. Not by any means to become independent or uh, a free agent, but to step into the role that you personally have been given to play as one among the people of God been said often over these last three months in a lot of different contexts, but let's never let a good crisis go to waste. Let's never let a good crisis go to waste. As we regather on the other side of a pandemic, remember the calling and the mission of God's people. 
people who praise and pray. Or as Peter writes in his letter, a kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. We are priests who are meant to, in that role, connect the people to God and God to the people. People who intercede on behalf of the needs of the people of our world. And people who Peter goes on to say there in 1 Peter chapter 2, who declare the praises of the God who has brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So let us praise and pray together. Let us praise and pray personally. And as we do that, may it encourage our souls. May you be encouraged as you leave here today, having gathered together with the people of God. But may it also invite other people in. May others overhear us. And may they join in so that together we would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to close just by taking a little collection of the verses of Psalm 66 to call us to this together. So hear these words from the book that we love. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Come and see what God has done. Blessed be God who has brought us out. And blessed be God who has not removed his steadfast love from me. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, our God, you have given us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. As we joyfully receive the good news for ourselves, grant that we might also gratefully share it with others. And in all of that, ever give glory to you, by whose grace alone we are what we are. And we pray this through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.